Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life. YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. Hello, fellow Armchair Historians. I have to warn you up front. Today we are talking about one of our darkest moments in recorded history, the Holocaust. There is no way of talking about this topic without it being exactly what it is, horrifying. My guest today is Rebecca Goose. She shares the harrowing story of her Jewish grandfather, Saul. Saul was born sometime around 1917 in Poland. He is 15 when Hitler takes power in Germany. This is about when Saul begins to see the cracks forming in what he believed to be a happy and secure life. This is about the time when non-Jews feel emboldened to openly spew hate through anti-Semitic sentiments and acts of violence. Sound familiar? Rebecca tells us about her dear grandfather, whom she loved fiercely, about how he was a tailor in Beverly Hills, and how he was in line with his two beloved sisters to go to the gas chamber at Treblinka, and how fate intervened through a chain of events that would allow Rebecca to be here to talk to us today. Fate would not be so kind to Saul's sisters. Rebecca Goose, welcome and thank you for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. So we just start out with the question and then we see where it goes. I do have to say, I watched Saul twice. Oh, and wow. I I feel like I have to listen and watch again to really get everything out of it because there's so many details. It was a harrowing story. I'm just going to ask you, I know what you're going to talk about. Uh, what's your favorite history that we're going to talk about today? I hesitate to call it favorite because of the positive connotations, but <laughs> the only history I'm involved with, the one that is very, very important to my own life and background is the Holocaust because they're related World War II, I guess, but I'm not much of a history buff. And so I know more about the Holocaust specifically than the war and how that went and everything like that. History was actually my worst subject in school. So, Why this history? This history is important to me because of my grandfather Saul was 15 years old when the Holocaust just took over and destroyed his life in many ways. And he lived. And to me, it is mind-blowing that so much went into my existence 
because well, while I, I just got chills, yeah, I totally just got chills when you said that. <laughs> well, I do too, and it's I never want people to think that I am expressing gratitude to Hitler or to the Holocaust, but I am also intimately aware of the fact that the only reason I am alive today is because that happened. Because my grandfather was born in Poland, in a little town in Poland, and he certainly would never have moved out of Poland to Canada and then eventually the United States to meet my grandmother if he, his life hadn't been uprooted. Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting – so it literally is a part of me, I guess, is, is why it's so important. And it, it causes me to think on it a lot. It's a very full, philosophical thought. At what point in your life did you realize that this was your grandfather's story and how did that impact you? I believe so so for background and um you're welcome to link his video in Oh, the I definitely will. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I believe this is through Steven Spielberg, believe it or not. He either started or in collaboration with the Shoah Foundation they went around to Holocaust survivors' homes and just interviewed them. Very simple. This was on VHS tapes that we had in our house. They, I mm. think he wanted to do some sort of project with it, but I don't know what. But at least we had the tapes. And now they have been converted to YouTube videos. So the Shoah Foundation have put them all on YouTube, which is great because, you know, tapes vhs tapes do not last and i first saw those tapes i knew he was a holocaust survivor i feel like aren't you in the video at the end as a child yes i am were you able to pick out which one i was yes well because they introduced he introduced everybody right okay yes i couldn't remember if he would say if he said do you remember that do you remember being there for that i was like three or four probably oh okay yeah i was very young I would know exactly how old I was if I remembered what year they recorded it, but I always forget. But I was very young, so I I don't remember being there. In fact, I was quite surprised to see myself when I watched the video through. I actually just liked seeing his passport more than anything else. That was such a slice of time. It was mind-blowing to see that to me. But I first watched the tapes when I was in sixth grade. I remember talking to my history teacher, maybe it was seventh, and I was telling him that I had just seen them because my history teacher, of course, would have cared. You know what I mean? And then in high school, when we did our World War II unit, I offered to bring them in. I didn't, I don't think I watched all of them when I was in middle school because I think it was a little hard for me. I mean, it's, it's, it's It's heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff. I will say that right now. If you are prone to emotional responses to violence and death and things like that, then, and graphic imagery, then don't, don't watch I hadn't seen the whole thing because I remember in, in in high school, 10th grade, I brought them in and we actually did watch some of the interview. It's a long interview. It's what, two and a half hours? So we didn't watch the whole thing. But we got to this part where he was working for a German farmer cleaning his horses and he was so exhausted that he fell asleep in the barn mm-hmm. and the farmer came mm-hmm. upon him and was not happy that he was sleeping and was going to hurt him or kill him. So he stabbed the guy through with a pitchfork. And that's what you got to do. You got to do it. I know he was. I just didn't know about that. He was a warrior. Saul was a warrior. He was a a rebel. He was a survivor in so many ways. He's stubborn. That's what I say. He was always too stubborn to die. And that's kind of an admirable quality in this case. He just he he basically he said at one point, like, I'm just not I if I die, it's not going to be because of these people. Like, I don't want to give them the satisfaction. 
but uh, yeah. I hadn't, I didn't know about the pitchfork incident, we'll say, up until that moment because I hadn't seen okay. it. So my reaction in class was a little bit real. So you realized it when you were in seventh grade watching this with the rest of your I class? I watched it in tenth grade with my class, yes. Uh, in seventh grade, I hadn't seen the whole video. So in tenth grade, I was like, oh, yeah, just I'll bring in this interview. You know, people will learn about, you know, life in, in the Holocaust and whatever. And I didn't know. And so I don't blame him or think of him as a murderer. You know, it was definitely you do what you need to do to survive. To jump forward, he obviously emerged with severe PTSD. You don't go through something like that and emerge no. as guard. And right, I, right. I never experienced any of that. He, as a grandfather, was the most kind and loving soul. And he's, he's my hero and my role model. But I know that my mother experienced some of the ramifications as, as he was a father who was basically working 24-7 just to make a living and make sure he could provide for his family. And on top of that, dealing with, you know, some undealt with emotional issues. He was a product of his time. So, of course, you know, it wasn't like he immediately went to therapy. You know, he, it was a different time then. He just kind of bottled it up. And so I know that there were layers to him. But the layer that I knew was a loving and doting grandfather who was proud of his family and just he, he rarely spoke. He, he, he was very quiet. But when he did speak up, it was often to make just a hilarious joke because you're not expecting it from him, I guess. And that's and that's what I remember most is that he was a hard worker. And I think in the video, I, I quote this for, for the students because I think it sums him up so well. But he says, if you can't work, you can't live, which is uh, great. It's that, oh, that quote sums him up. And so that's what I knew. So he is, he has since passed yes. away since the, t okay. he actually passed away after that. I did the first ever, I called the Jew talk uh, for, for my, for the freshmen. <laughs> um, to them, I call it the Judaism talk, but to the teachers, I call it the Jew talk for funniness. Oh, okay. So what year was this? 2018, I believe, if I'm doing the math oh, okay. correctly. My mother died in 2017. Oh, yeah. She was, so she was, uh, Eight when the war broke mm -hmm. out. And um, anyways, I think that the older that you are, the better able you are to process and deal with things and move on as an adult. Yeah. And I know 15 doesn't sound very old, but uh, I had my mom had a first cousin who was 15 and she was a courier for the resistance. <laughs> yeah. uh, she did a lot of crazy stuff, but I always felt like my mother was more kind of stuck than uh, her first cousin, Renee. And I think it had to do with the fact that um, she took control like your uh, grandfather did. You know, she did stuff to try and fight the best way that she could. Yes, I, I think that he grew up very fast as well. 15 nowadays is not. I still see it as a kid, although when I was 15, I was like, I'm on top of the world. But I think he, he just had to. He just became an adult very quickly. And he took control. I remember in the interview, he kept saying, and then I got restless again. And it was like, yeah. <laughs> it was like, okay, where are you taking us now, Saul? <laughs> yeah, he went all over. I, I was trying to transcribe this because I know he has a thick accent. And some people would, would want to watch but would need subtitles, like my husband's hard of hearing, for instance. And I had a lot of Googling to do. 
it was a lot of guess and check. He would randomly break into German. He speaks a lot of languages. So I was like, I don't know what city in Poland this is. I don't speak Polish. So I had to do a lot of Googling and then a lot of like sounds like this. And I might have to contact somebody who speaks Polish at some point to uh, finish the transcription. Um, the thing that impressed me and the only thing that got me through and kept watching is that I knew that Saul was going to live because he was here telling me the story. Right. And I don't know if I could have watched it if I didn't know that. And he, there were so many narrow escapes that his story should be a movie. <laughs> I'm serious. It's like, I mean, you hear stories of the Holocaust, but this, his story is like an epic. It, it starts in one place, everything is great and la la la. And then all these, I don't want to call them adventures because that sounds like fun, but all these, you know, he goes down all these different paths and, you know, he just keeps making the right decision. Um, and his his life is spared because of that. Yeah. And I mean, he gets lucky a couple of times as, as we'll get into, but... Yeah, he has. I think when he said he got restless, I I assumed that that was his way of saying that his survival instincts were kicking in. I think that he knew he couldn't stay in one place for too long, even if it was just subconsciously knowing that that moving around and finding safer locales was better than staying in, staying put for too long. Um, but also, yeah, he just that's him. Like like I said, he wasn't. I think that he survived because he was able to emotionally detach himself which isn't necessarily a good quality. I know that he wasn't a perfect person, but he also felt, I know that he loved his family, but he understood the situation he was in and was able to move on from them when he needed to. And it it's just, it was a survival mode life for him for several years. And, uh, and I always make sure to impress upon this, the freshmen when they're watching this, that he was their age when it happened. And I think that's what hits them the hardest because he literally was 15 when it started. And so, so I play them a clip, which you will have seen now um, to introduce the topic because it's a, it's a talk about Judaism, but also the Holocaust. And the first time I did the talk, I, I did all the background on Judaism and then ended with the Holocaust. And I realized that that was kind of a sad note to end on. So I switched it subsequent years to starting with the Holocaust and then moving on to just talking about the religion because, you know, then they don't leave feeling quite as depressed but I play them a clip where he's talking about right at the beginning when he and many other Jewish people, hundreds and hundreds, were being marched by the Germans from a town whose name I cannot pronounce um, to a town whose name I can't pronounce. And they marched for miles. They killed a man by dragging him behind a tank um, because he couldn't keep up and apparently were taking pictures of it. And they took them to, I think, like a little abandoned church, if I remember, and kind of sat them down and gave them ice, but no food or actual water. And then apparently a few people tried to escape. And so they shot some of them and brought four of them back to hang them as an example in front of everybody. And he says the words, this was my first experience as a 15-year-old boy. And that's where I pause. And I know that it's impactful and it pretty much sums up as much as I can, you know, they can't see the whole two hour video. So I figure that will give them enough of an impression. And then I talk about, you know, what he meant to me as a person and that he survived and things like that. I tried to impress upon them that it's still relevant because we have neo-Nazis in the country today. 
And some people don't believe the Holocaust happened and anti-Semitism and all that. But yes, he was born in a little town in Poland. I believe it was close to some of the bigger, more recognizable cities like Warsaw. Groyech or something close to that. His given name is Shlomo. He had two sisters and I believe a brother. His family life is a little unclear to me because he lost them, you know, throughout this experience, you know, and and so I had trouble keeping track. So sometimes I think maybe he had a brother that survived, but they weren't able to reconnect. And sometimes I think maybe he didn't have a brother at all, but I know he had the two sisters. So I thought that he had a brother who died from a disease. Yeah. Uh, Is that it? It's a very long and it's dense. There's just so much information. This is actually my bad at history showing like this is why like the the dates and the names and the events slip through my mind very easily and this was what i struggled with in high school but i know that he had two sisters mother and father small town he he here's some distinctive stuff about him he was a very picky eater from birth and to i think for, from the beginning at least all the time that i knew him he never ate a vegetable if there was parsley on his salmon when he ordered it at a restaurant, he would send it back. Nothing green, mm. no carrots, no onions. He was okay if it was cooked like a broth. It was cooked with vegetable to get, you know, like chicken soup or whatever. But it all had to be strained out by my poor beleaguered grandmother. And he would eat potatoes because that's an important, you know, staple. But not like carrots, not broccoli, not parsley. <laughs> it's, I don't know what it is. It was just this pickiness. When he, he ordered a hamburger, it was the meat and the bun. That was it. He changed his name when he... I don't actually know when the name change happened because he didn't go through the Ellis Island route. He went to Canada first, but at some point in the move, that's that's when he became Saul Lieber. I don't know what his... Saul Yeah, I don't know what his last name was, but I know his first name was Shlomo. Another interesting thing, and this I don't know why, if it's common or or what, but we didn't know his birthday. And, And he didn't know his birthday. We celebrated on December 3rd every year. Because it was maybe our best guess, but I don't know if it just wasn't something that was particularly celebrated where he came from or what happened there, but hmm. it, we just didn't have a definitive date for that. Um, and so we knew, I think we knew what year he was born, but not the day. And so we just had a day we celebrated. And uh, yeah, he was 15. If my dates are correct, because obviously everyone knows that the the extent of World War II and the Holocaust was longer than two years. The yeah. Hitler must have taken power before it affected his life, if that makes sense. So, nineteen thirty three. So he was fifteen when I say I I say he was fifteen when the Holocaust affected his life when it took over his life. That's when it started to affect him. The main years are, I would say, 15 to 17 years old, about there, is when he was in the worst of it. Yeah. And okay. he, they just came. I think that this is a very similar story across many Jewish peoples and survivors' stories, is, is just one day the Nazis came and they took them. And that was it. It was, it just happened. I remember stories of people who were just having a wedding or something and it was just interrupted and that was it. They were taken away and they were marched for miles and miles. He would say kilometers, of course. And he, I tend to just tell it through some significant events because especially the memorable ones. So one of them is, of course, as you saw, uh, he was unwittingly, I suppose, a member of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, 
I don't think he like signed up for that. <laughs> I didn't quite understand that, but yeah, yeah he was. He, he just ended up there. This is one of the times when he got lucky. Is was going to fetch a, a big pot of soup or food or just the pot itself or something, and there was gunfire. And when he got back with it, he just had the handle in his hand. It had been shot out of his hand. Everything else, and and yeah, and so I think he just kind of got roped into that because he was most of the time it was he got roped into something because he was young and male, and so he could work. And uh, and th- that didn't go well. Um, that that didn't end with success on their part. But they tried their best, and the resistance was something that would make into an exciting movie scene. You know, they play it for excitement when really it's devastating. He also, uh, I think that the the most emotionally impactful part of his story is when he and his sisters were taken to Treblinka, which is a death camp. Mm-hmm. So not a concentration camp. Um, this this video was what taught me that death camps existed. I don't. I'm not purposefully ignorant, but I do shy away from a lot of Holocaust history because it feels so real to me. And I know I owe it to him. It's so painful. Yeah, I know I owe it to him to know this information, but it's very, very difficult. Um, When did you first, let me just stop you there. When did you first know about the Holocaust? I've been trying to remember, and I don't know if I remember when I first grasped what it was, my instinct says that I knew vaguely from a young-ish age, but I don't know, I don't think I would have fully understood until at least middle school what it actually was. And then it solidified in my mind, obviously, much more the older I got and the more information I got. So I'm sure that my mother would have told me, at least on some level, when I was younger, but... I think my mother was watching something and she, it's not that she made me watch it, but I watched it with her and she knew I was there mm-hmm. and I was pretty young and I was devastated. Yeah. I was devastated. It and it, you know, it, the Holocaust is not my mother's story. Um, but you know, I think about what she went through at eight years old and it was horrific. But then I look at Saul and I look at, oh, just what happened to and and I'm pissed at our government, you know. Anyways, that's a whole other story, but I'll probably cut that out. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I just I remember hearing about it. I was young. I it was I was probably too young to know about it, or maybe not. But it stuck with me. But I'm just curious. Um, and you know, do you ever think that maybe your family protected you from it a little bit? I I think my mother always had a policy of of honesty with me to the best of her ability. So okay. I don't think she would have tried to protect me necessarily, but she would have gauged what I was like emotionally capable of 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 hearing and understanding as well from the age. So so I don't think she would have like if I'd asked, she would have told me as much as she thought that I could understand. She definitely had kind of an honesty is the best policy take on it. And I appreciate that for sure. So I, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up and end up with some surprise that my my grandfather had survived the Holocaust or something like that. It was something I feel right. like I just knew, even if I didn't know yeah. what the okay. Holocaust was as a, as a child. The tapes were hard to watch. I'm remembering now that I definitely did not finish them when I was... 11 or whenever I first watched them or tried to watch them. But what were you thinking when you watched them? Cause you know, here's your grandfather and he's, he's giving, you know, details and depth to his story. How did that affect you? 
Well, it's interesting because I see him sitting in uh, his living room <laughs> or, you know, I think his dining room is in the backdrop. And it's the place that I grew up going to for every religious holiday and some fun weekends. And just like it's a familiar home to me. And he it feels unreal when I listen to it. And I, you know, in a way, I almost understand how some people could question it happening now of course usually they question it happening because of anti-semitism and not just because it sounds you know it's but it sounds unbelievable it does the the atrocities are so intense and so indescribable that i just i i go again and again back to how could this happen how could people do this how could this happen and i try to I try to imagine my grandfather, who was this soft-spoken, gentle man, and try to imagine him as a little boy going through this. And I, I really can't he, because the, the boy who went through that is not the person I knew growing up. But I believe him, obviously. It just feels unbelievable. But obviously, I know it happened. And yeah, I think the first time it probably brought me to tears, which is why I probably stopped watching and he's so emotionally detached yes. from the story when he tells, he tells it, it like which I almost, <laughs> I almost think it's, I hate to say this because it was his, you know, survival skill that, you know, sometimes our greatest strengths are our greatest weakness. Yeah. It made it more palatable for me yes. to watch. And I think that's a defense mechanism for him as well, is to just disassociate. My mom told me that he was able to watch World War II movies, for instance, and he, he didn't shy away from talking about it. I think that he was okay, oh, okay. with that. But there was one time I saw him lose his cool a little bit. And I think it was the only time in my life I did, honestly. We were, I think it was at a, a celebratory dinner in my grandparents' honor, actually, because they had donated an ambulance to Israel which uh, is a big thing. They, you know, the Red Cross needs the ambulances. And somebody came to our table with like a flyer for a tour of Auschwitz or something like that, you know, a historical thing. And he turned him away. And I remember him getting quite sharp and saying once was enough. And... That's the only time he kind of put someone in their place. Right. Now, he did not go through Auschwitz. A lot of people asked, does he have the numbers on his arm? Was he in Auschwitz? He he does not have the numbers. He didn't have the tattoo. But uh, I think he meant the Holocaust once was enough. But uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Definitely. Interesting. Um, so that's the only time I saw him get sharp with someone. I don't think he liked seeing someone trying to commoditize it a little bit, even though I'm, I think they were just trying to, you know, they weren't trying to, you know, profit. They were, they were hoping to I, give historical information, but. At the same time, I think that was the only thing that set him off. Um, well, I think for the the generations that came after, that um, going there and seeing it keeps it real. And, you know, I think it's our responsibility to keep these stories out there. One of the things that impressed me when I was listening and watching Saul is he talked about the, the interviewer asked him, you know, when did you start to experience anti-Semitism? Mm -hmm. And for him as a child, what he said is that it was when Hitler came to power. And that was, I know that was 1933. The parallel to what happened when that guy who just left our house in Washington, D.C., 
people were emboldened to come out of the shadows and be racist and be anti-Semitic in, in, in a very big and scary way. We are capable of this. It can happen again. And, you know, these stories that you're telling, I'm working on a documentary about my mom, that story I'm telling, they're all, you know, you have to look at these things. You have to, you know, you have to watch Saul and listen to his story and you have to take it in. So I'm really grateful that you were you spoke up and you're like, well, I, I'd like to talk about my grandpa. It's he's was in the Holocaust. The not a lot of people, not a lot of people are willing to come, you know, and talk about that. And these are the kind of histories that I want to share with people. So that was one of my tangents. You can cut this out if you need to, and I'm not going to get too political, but I will simply say the parallels were quite apparent to me, and I was scared. Um, yep, my mom. Okay, my yeah. mom in 2016, she was dying. She hadn't voted in 20 years. And she told me the reason that she voted was because Pence reminded her so much of Goebbels. Mm-hmm. And she got out and she was sick and she voted and she was terrified for us. Yep. She knew she wouldn't be around that long, but she was terrified and with good reason. Ah. Yeah, it the honestly the the biggest parallel that I see is is the public speaking. Hitler, the one thing that people say about him is he was charismatic. He sounded like he knew what he was talking about. He pulled people in. He had a charm about him, a confidence. And that's what I saw with Trump's rallies and his speeches. He was saying nothing. He was saying nonsense. But he <laughs> Well, that was the confidence. one thing we had going for us is that he wasn't as smart yes. as Hitler, nor the people surrounding that him. That was our one saving and grace. And that was our saving grace. But just imagine when somebody fills that void that he has left, because those people are looking for somebody to fill that void. That's what scares me now. A lot of Jewish people started formulating an escape plan. We'd seen it before. And I, I had a brief discussion with my husband. I have family in Canada. That was our plan, is we were going to get there if we had to. We always have to have that in the back of our minds. I remember I studied abroad in London when I was in my senior year of college. I was very fortunate to be able to go. And I took a sociology course, fascinating course. It wasn't my major, but I just, you know, I needed to take courses. Basically, I was a senior. I, I filled almost all my credits. And he took us to a synagogue in London. And I didn't even know there was a Jewish population there. And sure enough, it was because there had been Jews in England at one point. They had been persecuted. They had been run out. It was kind of our, it's kind of our story. The, the joke that goes around is Jewish people. They tried to kill us. They failed. Let's eat. <laughs> That's our thing. So uh, we kind of went off on some sidebars. Oh, yes. I'm side making bars. editing harder for you, I imagine. I don't know. Lately, I've been a little bit more accepting of how the interview unfolds. So Saul gets to Treblinka with his sisters. That's kind of where we left off in his chronological narrative of the significant events that you're using to kind of plot through his story. The last thing I said was I, I didn't know death camps existed. In my mind, concentration camps, gas chambers, those were kind of the same thing. And I believe concentration camps, obviously, 
did have gas chambers and execution methods. But I didn't know that there were places specifically to just take them and kill them en masse. There are plenty of places like that, but Treblinka was one of them. Probably one of the most famous, I would say. I think that that's a name that a lot of people remember. And he was in line for the gas chambers with his sisters, just like that. So did his sisters go to the gas chambers? That's where he lost them. In that line. So the, the, once again, 15-year-old or 16-year-old, maybe at this point, I don't know, healthy-looking young man, they pulled him out of line. He could do work. He was useful. So basically, they pulled him out of line and they left his sisters in the line and they put him on a train and, you know, he survived, but they did not. And he tells this is the one part in the video where he gets choked up. I think, again, it's more just him remembering that there were about 3000 people there and it took about an hour for complete silence. They killed them all in the gas chambers. It didn't even take that long. And that's the part that really gets to him. That's combined with the fact that he knows his sisters were among them. And his sisters were trying to protect him for as much as they could during that early, those early uh, months as well. I remember jumping back a little bit. There was one time when the Nazis were standing young men in windows and using them as target practice. And so they kind of like put him behind them, his sisters, and just tried to hide him so that he would not be selected oh, for yeah. that. And so I know that they cared about each other. I just think he doesn't linger on those things. And I don't blame him at all. I mean, the the horrors that he experienced, I think the only way to recount it is to simply pretend you're a different person than the person in the story, or however he got through it. That's fine. Well, having been raised by my mother, and I can relate to your mother, I think, in a way, because my mother, the way that she dealt with it is she was hard and unforgiving, and she never wanted to look back. At least, at least your grandfather would talk about it. My mother refused to until she got much older. The horrors of her life were horrific enough for an eight-year-old, but nothing, nothing compared to what uh, the Jews went through. And she was semi-protected from that. She didn't know about that until after the war, she said. Yeah, I had a friend who her, her ancestors were in Hungary, I believe, but they survived because they were blonde and blue-eyed. So they were able to blend in. Some people got lucky. Some people had horror stories. I don't try to compare and contrast. Everybody has their own story. And I don't get offended if somebody says that their their ancestor went something th- through something difficult at that time as well, because our, our horrors are, are horrific just in general. We all live through them and, and, and cope in what ways we can. And yeah, getting hard about it and, and not uh, and unforgiving, that was, yeah, that's very similar to what he did, according to my mother. So, And I grew to appreciate it, you know, over the years as I got older. You know, my mom, like you said, and why I got chills, my mom was a survivor. She did what she needed to, to survive. Her parents did. And because of that, I'm here. Yeah. So I am grateful. I'm yeah, I'm great that's a good way to put it. I'm grateful to him for being a survivor for for not giving up and for for instilling that value in me. I mean, the hard work thing I have somewhat controversial opinions depending on who you're talking to about this idea of the American dream that if you simply work hard enough, you'll be able to have a mansion and be rich and 
capitalism will smile down upon you and all that. But for the very specific case of my grandfather, he did that when he came here. Um, he was very poor, but he knew how to be a tailor because he was apprenticing as a tailor when the war mm-hmm. happened. So um, so he went to a company and he said, I will make you 100 dresses and half the time that so-and-so is going to do it for you. Um, just Just give me a try. What have you got to lose? And so they did. And he made the 100 dresses and they kept him on and he worked his way up and then he just eventually owned that company. And it required no vacation days. Like he, he wasn't able to vacation. He wasn't able to spend a lot of time with his family. You know, they had very little money growing up, but he did achieve that for himself. And I would have wanted that for him. I mean, after all that he'd been through, I suppose. I'm getting ahead of myself, I suppose, but he he was put in some situations, basically. Sometimes he was just wandering, you know, trying to keep his head down. And that's how mm-hmm. he would end up working for, for instance, the German farmer and cleaning his horses and whatever. He said the farmer would, they were white horses and the farmer would, I think, put on gloves to rub down the horses. And if dust came away, he would get a beating, right? Um, but other times he ended up in work camps. You know, he, uh, I think he was made to uh, break in the new shoes that the German soldiers had to wear, you know, wearing his feet bloody because he was breaking these shoes. And there were, sati- there were sadistic people there who were, who, who beat people and killed people for the fun of it as well. I mean, when you, there are certain things that will just draw, you know, sadists. And this event was one of them. So while I don't believe that every Nazi was just like born evil, some of them were psychopaths, right? He just developed this mentality of, I, I don't want to let these people kill me. And through circumstances where he would barter and bargain for his life and, and just work hard to prove that he was valuable, he survived, those events and he moved from one location to the next and you know he got lucky a couple times as i said you know and he tried to tend to his family but of course got separated from them i will say i i didn't i can never catch what happened to his parents i know he re, he met up with his mother and father at separate times throughout his journey but i don't i mean they obviously they didn't make it but i don't know how or when or if he even knows because he got separated from them so much yeah, that went on for years, you know, working for German soldiers, being in camps, work camps, taking beatings, being bloodied. He, I think that just kind of took him right up to basically America's involvement in the war and things coming down. And I think he he had a relative or he knew somebody who helped him get that passport and get to Canada. Let's back up. Am I going too fast? No, I just want to kind of spend some more time at the... You know, so he gets to Treblinka. There's one thing I didn't understand when I was watching and listening. It seems like the Allies, what we considered the Allies, were coming through. And then the Germans took the, some of the prisoners on the road with them. Is that Was that my correct understanding? When he was at Treblinka? Or- yeah, at the end. I might be getting my events mixed up. I might be yeah. getting it mixed up too. All I remember it, you is know, it, pulled out of line and taken somewhere to work. Okay. Hitler and, you know, the Nazis were trying to hold on and hold out for as long as they could. 
there was a German soldier that he had to, you know, he was like his servant or something like that as they're on the road. Because the Germans are trying to go to safe territory because the writing's on the wall. I don't know. I'm going to just say to my listeners that I am going to put the link to the YouTube video of Rebecca's grandfather. And I really want you to watch it and listen to it because it's a it's an amazing story. Spoiler alert, Saul lives. <laughs> so it it's still very harrowing. I just I want you guys to listen to it. If you get a sense of exactly what happened at the end, let me know. And yeah, let me know too. I've seen this a couple times now, but I remember events better than like when on the timeline they happened. So I think that you were right that, I mean, at some point this did happen where the tide was turning in the war. And obviously, yes, the writing was on the wall. And that one thing that I tend to remind people is even when the war was won, it wasn't like somebody snapped their fingers and life was good for the Jews. There was no relief effort for them, for the most part. And so, sure, they were freed from the camps, but many of them were starving on the street. They didn't know where they where their families were, if their family was alive and all that stuff. I think he was one of the lucky ones because surviving to the end of the war didn't necessarily mean surviving right. still. I mean, obviously, he was one of the lucky ones he lived. I think he just kind of immediately left for Canada, he had nothing tying him to that area anymore. And and that area of the world had hurt him so badly. So he went to Canada. And when my mom was one year old, they moved to Beverly Hills, California. So that's an interesting place to go to from Canada. Yes. I think when my grandfather moved there, maybe a friend of theirs introduced them or something like that. They got married, they settled down, and then eventually moved to the the States, I think, for opportunities or whatever usually pushes people to the States. And that's when my uh, second uncle was born, my mom's younger brother. They lived in Beverly Hills all my life and I believe all my mom's life and obviously moving when they, you know, were more comfortable money-wise to a, a better place. I didn't grow up in Beverly Hills, just for anyone who recognizes the name. I did not grow up there. I grew up in what we would call the San Fernando Valley, uh, which is where the Valley Girl idea comes from. But I I grew up in a little suburb that uh, was very far away from the big city. So, Well, I thought it was such a stark contrast when, you know, they would say that Saul lives in Los Angeles compared to where he came from. It's a big jump. He came from a little village. And the, the interviewer's question about when he first experienced anti-Semitism is an interesting one historically because Jews tended to live in Jewish communities and it was a little insular. And so I'm sure, yeah. I mean, like I know that anti-Semitism existed all around him and he may just never have been exposed to it simply because he never had reason to interact with a non-Jew. Right. And I'm married to a non-Jew. I'm the only one in my family. And it took me a long time to realize that I think that it's born out of a distrust of of non-Jews is that they've never historically been very nice to us. But the idea is you're supposed to marry right. a Jew, which is, again, why I had him watch my Big Fat Greek Wedding. You know, it's I, I'm I'm the rebel of the family. I have tattoos. I married a non-Jew. I see. So I've, I've come to question some things about religion, about, you know, our ancestors, about every single thing that, you know, we just kind of grew up being told, well, you have to marry a Jewish boy or something like that. Right. But I also know that nobody's perfect. 
no community is perfect. No group of people is perfect. So I, you know, I basically kind of tossed out the ideas that I disagreed with, but kept the ones that mattered to me. So the holidays, the culture, the family, all of that. But I eat bacon. You know, I know. (gasps) Everything's better with bacon. For those who don't know, I suppose, in Judaism, there is something called the laws of kashrut or kosher i can't i can't remember if kashrut is yiddish or what but it's it's keeping kosher it just means there's certain foods and food combinations you're not supposed to eat my favorite is no dairy with meat because once upon a time people would have like three cows and if you were eating a steak and drinking milk it was very likely that you were consuming the mother's milk while consuming her child at the same time and so yeah is that what and it that's is? That's the story I heard. Obviously, I'm not a historian. That is a horrible visual. It is, Can I just say that? I mean, I'm sorry to say I should have warned you, I suppose. But it's it's cows I'm talking about. But but I could see that. Like, I understood that. Like, it was almost like out of respect for the animal, I'm not going to drink your milk while eating the baby that you produced, right? And so I got that. Nowadays, <laughs> dairy farms and beef farms are different. There is no chance of that. So I tend to just kind of... Anything that doesn't make logical sense, I don't do. Mm-hmm. Like pigs were seen to be unclean. And I get that. Pigs, you know, hang out in dirt all day. And I get it. No shellfish because probably once upon a time somebody ate an oyster and it made them very sick. You know, I get that. Yeah, or killed right. them. Maybe even killed them. So, you know, any number of things, I, I understand where they were coming from. But I also understand that. I will never believe in a God who never who who would want us to get stuck in the Stone Ages and never progress and never think for ourselves. So I I just do the things that that make logical sense. I don't know where we left off. You were telling us that that just because we had won the war, oh, yes. it, it wasn't a quick transition. There were still a lot of people who died because of being in these camps and malnourished, and you know you were kind of painting that picture somebody helped him to get a passport i I think he just kind of glossed over that part basically he he just left you know as soon as he could and i think he probably had some help because i don't think it was super easy to just you know leave but he he just left and he changed his name and he started over i think that's interesting that he changed his name (laughs) and i wonder if it had anything to do with the fact that he killed somebody (laughs) No, because I don't think anyone knew he did. I mean, obviously he admitted to it now, but he he was alone on that farm. He killed the he killed right. the guy and left. He ran. So, well, I see it was self defense. It was self defense for sure. The, the guy was going to kill him, but I think some police were actually looking for him at some point. I don't know if it was for yeah. that or some other things, but at at that point, you know, that was years ago. Years had passed, and you know, other things occupied people's minds. You know, and the other thing that I thought was really interesting is because there were so many places that he went to that he talked about, it really gives you the lay of the land of what it's like in war, in a war like yes. this. It's not, you know, when we when I thought about war as a child, it was, you know, very structured. And it's no. not, you know, and then he killed that guy and for a little time they were looking for him in that area and then he went to um, he found his sisters and he stayed in the um, their dorm or wherever they were sleeping. And, you know, it was like a whole new country almost that he starts living this new life. And, you know, and then people forget because 
you know, the war is getting worse and yep. worse for both sides. It is. And they have other things that occupy their times. And it's not like they had the technology to pass around his photo, for instance. You know, it's like... Why did this German guy have a farm in Poland? Was it his? Oh, I don't know about the location of the farm. I think there's a couple possibilities. I don't believe he ended up in Germany proper ever. I believe like a lot of the Germans and Nazis simply like took over Jewish-owned farms and properties, especially right. if they had been taken away to concentration camps. And so it probably wasn't his originally. That's yeah. what I was I mean, thinking. That's, I, I think he said in the video, but maybe he didn't. But that would be my first guess is just it wasn't his. He occupied it, we'll say. Right. But yeah, he uh, he basically promised to work hard, as I said, just for a lot of different Yeah, he always did that. He always said, I can do this. And he always over-delivered, it seemed yes. like. And that was... One of the things that saved his bacon, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> yes, he saved saved his turkey bacon. Sometimes I wonder if I should take it with a grain of salt, right? Aren't we all the heroes of our own stories? Is he overinflating his accomplishments? It worked. He survived. So on some level, he must be telling the truth. My mom was like that. And I, you know, I always kind of listened to her. And, and that was always the narrative. And I did notice that with your grandfather is... He persevered and he was the hero of his mm -hmm. story. But those are the moments that they need to hang on to. You know, that's a moment he needs to hang on to when he survived that moment. And good for him. I, I can't right? blame him for that. So I just, you know, I look at it and sometimes I'm wondering why he's being so callous or why he doesn't seem emotional about it or if he's being entirely truthful. But in the end, the account is truthful enough the emotions are probably mm -hmm. buried, but they're there when they need to be. And it's it's a harrowing story. And so I just I just accept it in the end for what it is. How do you think that family history has impacted you? I think honestly it's just made me fiercely proud of being Jewish. Like I said, I I understand there's some faults with the religion and not all Jewish people are good. I don't automatically love every Jewish person like Ben Shapiro exists, right? But somewhat obnoxiously, I feel I always find ways to work into the conversation that I am Jewish. I need people to know. It's it's something that if if my grandfather nearly died for it, I feel like I want people to know. My birthday is December 24th, so I am very used to the conversation of people pointing out as Christmas Eve to me which is interesting because obviously I would know that. But they say it more like, wow, Christmas Eve. And then I simply say, I'm Jewish. And some people go, oh, okay, so. Uh. And other people go, what does that mean? Why Why does that matter? And I say, because I don't celebrate Christmas. And they go, oh, you know, and I say I celebrate Hanukkah. And, that, and that's sometimes over Christmas Eve. And sometimes it's in the very beginning of December or it starts after Christmas or whatever because Jewish holidays follow the lunar calendar. So they move around on the solar calendar. I'm not shy of it. I also have a few choice words for people who say there's a war on Christmas. Basically, I say when you question when you're going to walk into a Target, if you're going to find items and materials to celebrate Christmas, then you can say there's a war on Christmas because that's what I do every time I move somewhere new and I walk into a store. I wonder if I'm going to find the materials I need to celebrate my holidays. And the answer in a lot of places is no. In Fargo, there is an end cap in Target where they will sell some Hanukkah stuff. The entire back of the store is dedicated to Christmas, but mm -hmm. we get an end cap, which is more than some places had. 
And so that's my choice words. I'll get off my soapbox now. Obviously, it's a nothing argument. Obviously, people needing to appear persecuted in order to gain political blah, 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 blah. I don't care. It's, it's, it was never about anything that they say it's about. But yeah, um, so that's just kind of how it's affected me. I've become kind of outspoken and stubborn. And um, and then just, uh, again, as, as far as his influence goes, I know how hard he worked to get where he was in life. And so that I, I know that you know, hard work is, is important. And I try to, I try to do him proud when I can. I know that some things, some choices I made, he would not be proud of, but he never expressed any kind of disappointment to me. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's just how it is. And, and my husband and I celebrate Hanukkah. He's semi converted in that he didn't go through the actual conversion process, but we call him an honorary Jew. He understands that I put a lot of value in food. So, you know, cooking for someone is my quickest way of saying I love them. And we celebrate Hanukkah every year and we're raising our kids Jewish. And so that's that's how it's affected me. Um, it didn't make me, you know, want to go out and be a religious scholar. It also didn't want make me want to be an Orthodox Jew. So even my grandfather was not Orthodox, although he observed the religion quite strictly. It made me kind of fiercely proud of, of him and and to be Jewish and to be his granddaughter. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, that's beautiful. And it was very sweet. And it was kind of a surprise at the end when there's Saul surrounded by all of his grandchildren. And it was very and you could just see how much he like how proud he was of his family. Mm-hmm. That was very sweet. I do have one question. Sure. What do you want my listeners if they could you could just tell them one thing about this history. What do you want them to know? Huh. I think what, so these things are kind of at odds, but there's two things that are important to know at the exact same time. <laughs> one is okay. that I bear no ill will to German people today. Oh. They are, they are no more responsible for the Holocaust than certain white people are for slavery. Although if those white people are defending slavery, then they are responsible. But if they're saying that if they are joining the right side and saying that that was horrible and, you know, reparations need to be made, then that's fine. But, they're you know, they didn't do anything against us. I would visit Germany, you know, someday. I, I think it's a lovely place. So there no good comes out of throwing ha- more hatred around, basically, to, to bear a grudge against people who weren't even alive at the time does nothing. But... As we were kind of discussing earlier, this can happen again. It, it it's it's such a platitude to say history repeats itself, but it does, and it's it's tough to know that you could be in danger because of who you are. And there are many many people who know exactly what I'm talking about because, in one way or another, they are a minority who has suffered in some way or know someone who has, and so. The knowledge is hard to have, but very important to have, because I don't want to see a repeat of this. And and even now, there I hear of neo-Nazi groups, and you know you watch things like things like Black Klansmen, which is an amazing movie, and it chills you to your bones. So there's no need for more hatred, but but the knowledge is power, and and it's important. So that's my kind of conclusion on the matter. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. One of the other things that I like to do, obviously, is talk about what you do on your platform. We connected because of Potato Lady. Yes. Actually, it was another 
interview that I got out of Twitter. Twitter's a great place to make connections. She does the, the podcast uh, As the Money Burns. And she sent me an email and told me about you. So then I reached out to you and gave you my information to do. So tell us about Potato Lady, and then also tell us about your um, podcast. Oh, sure. Uh, well, funnily enough, Potato Lady came from a discussion about latkes, which is a food traditionally eaten <laughs> at Hanukkah made of potatoes. So that's relevant, I guess. I wouldn't be Potato Lady without my grandfather <laughs> and without... Uh, oh, I was wondering why you were Potato yes, Lady. Yes, my best friend, who is also Jewish, was asking about the best potatoes to use for latkes, which is obviously uh, russet or Idaho potato, brown potato. Oh, I didn't yep. know. I, I never know what kind of potatoes <laughs> yeah. to use. For uh, yeah, well, I'm currently starting up a YouTube channel that is not dedicated to pancake recipes. But while I work on um, making the videos I want to make, I am putting pancake recipes up there. I started out just putting behind the scenes for the art I do for my reviews. And now I'm putting pancake recipes. And although I b- believe that latkes are erroneously called potato pancakes because I think that puts people in mind of like a batter made out of potato which is gross I figure I'll do a latke recipe at some points maybe around the holidays like a how-to recipe and stuff uh, video so and that's uh, that that YouTube channel just to go with my brand although I hate saying that word is potato lady has thoughts so if you search it up you can find it but yeah so I became potato lady for, for that reason and I do podcast reviews on Twitter I started out very clumsily doing podcast reviews on Twitter, but I do them a little bit more officially and professionally now. And that is at Bex Goose. That's B-E-X-G-O-O-S. And I do two reviews every weekday. On top of that, I do have a a podcast with my husband called Not Again with an exclamation point at the end. And I just tell people to look for the podcast art that is two remotes covered in popcorn and breakfast cereal. We overanalyze children's entertainment because our son rewatches children's entertainment ad nauseum. And especially in the throes of quarantine, we were going a little off the walls. And so we decided to start a podcast where we vented all these thoughts about these shows we'd seen and movies we'd seen again and again and again <laughs> until we got it out of our system. And it has been quite cathartic and it has been therapeutic to do that. And I tell people don't start with episode one because that was us kind of fumbling around not knowing what we were doing. I usually say start with episode eight, which people love anyway, because it's our Finding Nemo episode, part one of two of our Finding Nemo episodes. And I'm rambling now. That's, did I forget anything? I have a YouTube channel, Twitter podcast. That's, that's me. We'll link out to all those in the episode notes too. So you're still doing the podcast. Every Saturday morning at 9am, we release a new episode. Oh, that's great. I've listened to a couple of them. They're interesting. I always go back to the beginning. I like that part where the you you can see that the podcasters are, you know, trying to find their way in the dark, and then they evolve. We do, and and I know podcasts do that, where the first couple episodes are rough. But I don't know if I, I feel like some people would be turned off by that, and so I always say if you do start with episode one, the content is good from from jump. In my opinion, it's just the the production value will increase. Um, over time. Yeah, it gets better. It gets better. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us about what you do about uh, Saul or the Holocaust? Um, Latkes? (laughs) Latkes, yes. Are they Latkes? 
Latkes. latkes, you'll yeah. have to tune into the YouTube channel, I guess. I'll do a whole thing about latkes and Hanukkah. It'll be great. I'll do a series about latkes. It's my calling as the potato lady. I have to just inhabit that now. I think that if you have a strong stomach, just watching the video, because hearing it come from him is a lot more coherent than hearing it come from me, um, twice removed through my mother and through this video and all that stuff. And, and you can see my patchy history knowledge. But your connection to it is what I, one of the things I love uh, about this podcast and interviewing people is that connection to it and you know how it affected you and the way you tell the story it's not lacking in any way it's a unique perspective and i i want to be part of the movement of sharing these histories that are hidden or not discussed or too traumatic you know too traumatic i say that with air quotes um, I feel like it's my responsibility to look the beast in the face. So when I'm feeling like I can't stomach this, I know I need yeah. to. And I need to hear it. I need to put flesh in it and understand it and see what it looks like. No, I think like. it's a great concept. And I, you should link your review, yeah. honestly, um, in the show notes. But Because uh, I did do your Oh, yeah, that was a very nice review. Thank you so <laughs> yeah. much. Because everything you said is what I try well, to do. I, I mean... I never want to be insensitive, but I will I will be honest here. When I was listening to your guest, James, a lot of what he was saying, it sounded like I could be saying it. You know, it's two very, very different yeah. histories. And yet the the pain and the oppression, it, it just it felt so familiar to me. I felt such a a wash yes. of empathy. And I have heard that before, that there has been some camaraderie that has been built up. By people who have experienced slavery and people who experienced the Holocaust, because it just it it's unspeakably horrible, <laughs> and those two unspeakably horrible events and, have and personal and it's personal. It is, yeah, I'm, and again, I, I'm not trying to compare anybody or say we're the same. I'm, I just no, but... I, I felt similar emotions from that from that history, and so I thought that was a great episode actually for me to to review. Just for my listeners, if you haven't uh, listened, James McKissick, a couple episodes back, he talks about his ancestor, Wilson Woods, who was an enslaved man. And uh, it's a fascinating story. It really so, absolutely. It, yeah. So I was glad to be able to hear it. Well, you know, I was, I was binge watching, um, oh, what's his name? Henry, Henry Louis Gates. And I was watching a, back-to-back episodes of it yesterday and you know like one show was a family who's they take a celebrity and they do their uh, genealogy and their dna and back-to-back it was a story of slavery in the first episode and then of the holocaust and you know when you started talking in the very beginning i thought about that show because that's the thing there is it's visceral. It's spiritual, even though you may not believe in God. It's spiritual. And I it's mean, you know, connecting it. to our ancestors, good or bad. There's something very profound in that. I I am surprised and impressed that so many Jewish people emerged from the Holocaust still believing in God. That is shocking. I mean, most of Europe lost their yeah, faith. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that some people did, and I don't blame them. But uh, that's the idea of faith, I guess, is you've got to have faith in it. But um, but yeah. then on the other hand, it's you know, for all the people who did survive, and then they have 
children and grandchildren, it's kind of a miracle that they yep. did. I can see that. The odds were against that. The odds were against sure. that. Anyway, yeah. So that's all I've got. All right. um, but yes, watching the video well, helps because you get all you get all the missing pieces that I left out. It's a fascinating story and it should be a movie, book, movie. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the talk. There you have it. Rebecca Goose and her grandpa Saul. To find out more about Rebecca, the potato lady, her upcoming YouTube channel, and her podcast, be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week.